You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and it is a beautiful Monday in the great state of Kansas and probably beyond. I don't know. I can't speak for other places, but here it's about nine kinds of awesome. Could be that we are coming off a great Sunday. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed yesterday. And I can't even point to any one specific moment in the service. It's just the worship was great. Uh, teaching, we dove through John chapter 6 and talked about this running conversation that Jesus had about the bread of life. And it was just so encouraging to go from that into communion and celebrate communion together, watching people pray together, hang out after the service. If you are in the area and you're watching online, or you are just listening to the podcast, let me just tell you, you're missing it. I mean, it, it's okay, but you're missing it. It is so good to be together. If you are near, join us. We would love to have you on a Sunday morning and uh, celebrate what God is doing together. Anyway, here we go from yesterday, John chapter 6. Thanks. I'm going to be teaching out of John 6 today. I am a little bit stuck in the Johannine writings, the, the writings of John. We went through First John, thank you, um, and uh, still in the Gospel of John, just kind of exploring uh, how he expounds on the love of the Father in such a practical way, how he shares Jesus in a way that matters just on a day-to-day basis. Jesus is eternal, but if he doesn't matter today, he's not eternal. We're in eternity right now. We're at the beginning. You know, okay, it goes from here on. And so if it doesn't matter today, he's not really eternal. And John 6 as a whole is a bit of a running conversation. Do you ever have these running conversations uh, maybe with somebody in your house that if you ever sat down and just talked about it, it's maybe a 30-minute conversation, but because you're so busy, it takes two days? You talk about it a little bit at breakfast. You see each other at lunch. Maybe in the evening you talk about it. You get tired of it. You start to get close to an argument. You put it on pause. You pick it up the next day. And you have this running conversation. John 6 is a bit of a running conversation, meaning he, it stretches out over two days, but he talks about the same thing, and it keeps coming back to it. It seems fitting that as we end this first week of the fast, that we do so talking about food. Because throughout biblical history and biblical imagery, there are few metaphors or motivators as common or as strong as food. Historically, people would search for food and it would cause them to do things that they they knew they should not do just to get it. And even go find it places they shouldn't go find it to feed themselves. Stay in John 6 if your Bible's open because we'll, we'll be there mostly. But if you look at the book of Ruth, Ruth 1.1, in the days the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn into the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So here in the house of bread, they don't have food and where do they go to look for it? They go to Moab. A good Hebrew would have had a hard time even saying the word Moab without a little bit of attitude. Moab. Because there was such a propensity against Moab. Israel had history with the Moabites and it was related to food and it wasn't good. In fact, because of their history, 
Moabites were prohibited from entering into the temple. It says in Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way. There's a story in during the Exodus where the, they travel through the land of Moab. Moab will not feed them. And so because Moab won't feed them, God says, all right, no Moabs in the temple whatsoever. Yet here in the book of Ruth, they run out of bread and they look to Moab. I'm negative, don't worry. Two years, every time you cough, you've got to tell people. God said, I don't even want to see Moabites because they kept bread from you. But for some reason, in Ruth 1, they decided to go to Moab for bread. It's not the point of the story of Ruth, but it's an interesting side point. We often look for legitimate needs in illegitimate places. We often look to fill our legitimate needs in places we should not go. How many of your friends or family or neighbors, never yourself, of course, have looked to other things other than God for things that only God can fulfill? So rich is the history of bread through the Old Testament. And Jesus talked a lot about bread. He used bread as an illustration so often that there were times that people were listening to him and they weren't sure, is he talking about himself or a sandwich? Matthew 16, 11 and 12, he, he says to people, how do you fail to understand? I'm not speaking about bread. He's like, well, because you were talking about bread. Yeah, I really wasn't talking about bread. Then they begin to understand that he was talking about leaven and the leaven of the Pharisees. All this bread talk didn't stop with the ascension. If you look at the early church, there was a lot of talk about bread. When they list what happened in their services, or what we would call their services, they only mention a couple of things, and food is one of them. Acts 2.45, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. We joke about the importance of our donuts, but there's something biblical about gathering it's as biblical to gather for a feast as it is for a fast. It's also more fun. It was a regular part of their service. Acts 27, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That was the whole point they came together. And Paul spoke unto the people because he intended to leave the next day and he kept on talking until midnight. So there is biblical precedent for donuts and long sermons. This morning, I want to specifically look at the activity and instruction Jesus gave regarding bread as he was teaching the people in John 6. And again, this is an ongoing, running conversation spread out over a couple of days. Just for context, he had just performed a miracle with bread at the beginning of the chapter. In the early part of that chapter, he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves, little barley loaves, and two fishes. And there are scholars that will go, yes, but how big were the loaves? It doesn't matter, okay? It, however big they were, if they were the size of a truck, still 5,000 people is a miracle. Is there anything more worrisome than limited resources? Of knowing you have X number of mouths to feed and X number of loaves to do it with. Right out of Bible college, Kelsey and I pastored, or pastored, felt like it. We, uh, we were house parents at a boy's home. We had eight teenage sons that were juvenile delinquents. They were that way when we got them. I didn't want to think that was our doing. And we were 22 and 19. And Kelsey did all the cooking. 
Now, you have to understand, Kelsey came from a family that when it was dinner time, they reached for the yellow pages. I've, I never saw our mother cook anything any more complex than maybe mac and cheese. And so Kelsey had to learn how to cook quick. And I remember this one afternoon, she was making stew, and she made all the stew, and we're looking at the stew, and these eight teenage boys could consume food like you would not believe. And she's like, I don't know if there's going to be enough. And the director of the home walked by, and he looked in, and he goes, add peas. Like, add peas? Like, how many peas could you add? He goes, it doesn't matter. You put peas in there, they won't eat as much. Put more peas in there. (laughs) It's like suddenly it would last forever. That wasn't this kind of thing. Jesus does a miracle here, and he feeds the people, and he generates enough leftovers that each of his disciples get a basket of their own. They're like, how do we go from five loaves and two fishes to everybody gets a basket of leftovers? Here's something we we lose sight of, though. The miracle, when there is a miraculous happening, the miracle is rarely the point. Now, I'm pro-miracle. I want to see people healed. I want to see the dead raised. I want to see hearts changed. I don't want to miss, though, what the miracle is about. There are people who lived through John 6 and thought the point of the whole chapter was a free sandwich. Jesus did that to open the door to a greater conversation, not about bread on the hillside, but the bread of life. So we go to John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. He gave us all sandwiches. Surely this is the prophet. Now, Christ's thoughts are not recorded here, but if you examine the rest of the chapter, it's hard to imagine that he is not thinking, if you only knew what I just did. If you only really knew what this is about. Because the next day, miles away, across the sea, in front of many of the same people, he redirects the conversation back to bread. The passage says here that he departs to be alone and he sends the disciples on ahead with him across the sea. And as they are crossing the sea without him, a storm erupts. And I don't mean, I don't mean it's a little squall, it's a significant storm. If you read the Gospels, it says that they rode in rough seas for three or four miles in a rowboat. And in Mark's Gospel, when they tell the story, it actually says that Jesus was watching them. There's something intriguing about Jesus standing on the hillside watching these guys fight the waves after having told them to go do it. Go get in the boat, go there, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and Jesus is praying, and he's watching them. It is a quirk of American, or at least Western, Christianity to interpret every struggle that we encounter as demonic uh, oppression and every season of ease as the blessing of the Lord. Here are these guys, they're like, he told us to get in the boat. He told us to row the boat. And now we've rowed three or four miles in rough seas. And they were operating in total obedience to the word of the Lord. They were doing what Jesus told them to. Every time that you struggle, it is a profitable thing to ask, what can I learn here? And where is Jesus? Like in the struggle here, where is Jesus and what is he doing? We are not very good at knowing what to rebuke and what to lean into. Eventually, Jesus finishes praying, finishes watching them struggle, and it says he walks out across the sea, and he actually was going to walk past them. Can you imagine you're out there in the boat struggling, and Jesus, you see him walking, and he's going right on by. 
And they cry out to him, and when they cry out to him, he comes to them, and the word says that in this case, instantly the boat was where it was supposed to be, and it takes them, it, it, it transports them to the dock or wherever they're going to land this thing. So he feeds the 5,000, puts them in a place of struggle until they cry out to him. It's so interesting that the struggle comes right after the miracle. Can you imagine if he was walking by and they cry out to him and he says, I gave you sandwiches yesterday. What do you want? This whole struggle was after a time of supposed victory, and it's almost as if to illustrate you need something more than temporal bread. You need more than the miraculous sandwich that he gives you. Because where he is calling you, if you're obedient, there will be struggle. And if he is not with you in the boat, your past miraculous experience will not get you where you need to go. Not every struggle we face is demonic oppression. Sometimes it's Jesus setting you up to cry out to him. So he takes him to the shore, and the next day the crowd finds him quickly, and Jesus redirects the conversation right back to bread. Remember I told you this ongoing conversation he has with him? Sometimes our conversations with Jesus seem a little awkward because he wants to talk about one thing and we want to talk about another. John 6, 25, they found him on the other side of the sea. These are all of the people who he had served the day before across the sea. They found him on the other side of the sea. Think for a minute what that took. They had to get in a boat. They had to struggle. with. They had the same struggle that the disciples did. So they went through a lot of exertion of energy to find him. They found him on the other side of the sea and they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? They've chased him all night across an open sea, and when they find him, they pretend to act casual. Well, hello, Jesus. Imagine running into you here. How did you get here? Jesus isn't having it. In John 6, 26 and 27, Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You got to love it when Jesus got your number. It's like, you, you didn't have any spiritual insight into this. You came because it was free Chick-fil-A yesterday. And so you came to find me again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Instantly it goes from Jesus, where have you been, to Jesus turning it into why they came. They're trying to make casual conversation. He said, no, 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 why are you here? Even on this gathering this morning, Jesus knows why you came. Think about it. Think about what happened in the house before you got here. Think what, how, how much of gathering is just because it's that day of the week. He knows why they came. He knows why they were motivated to cross the sea. Because last time they were together, they got lunch. He tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What does he mean, not because you saw the signs? What's the nature of a sign? Sign tells you what is coming. Doesn't tell you what is. Tells you what's going to be there. If you've had... If you're driving across the state of Kansas, heading to Colorado, you're drinking water because you know the elevation is going to change. You got to hydrate so you don't get the headaches when you get there. You've had about four of these. 
Just to add to the mystery, all the kids in your car are asleep. You don't want to stop, but you need to stop. And you see a sign that says, rest area, five miles. Let me explain what that sign means. It means in five miles, there's a rest area. Okay? That does not mean the rest area is right there. And what you need to do at the rest area, you can't stop at the sign and do. It's bad form. The sign points to what is coming, but it's not there yet. There is an understanding that when you see a sign, there is a greater reality and you are getting there. Later, the disciples begin to put this together and they begin to ask questions like, what will be a sign of your coming? They begin to zoom, zoom in on this idea that, oh, he's giving us signs. But what he's telling them here is, you're not here because of your spiritual insight and you perceived a sign from me. You're here because I gave you a sandwich. Let me ask you, what are you following Jesus for, even in a season of fasting? What is your motivation for chasing him down? Is it because of his history of providing for us? Or is it because we want to know him? Is it because we see the signs? Are you coming after provision or a person? And here's the secret. If you go after the person, you get the provision. But if you only pursue provision, you end up alone. People often do smart things for the wrong motivation and they're destined for disappointment. These people weren't here to sing, see King Jesus. They were like looking for King Salmon because he'd done that before. And I'm telling you, even if you have followed the Lord for years, it is an easy trap to fall into. We look back at our history. Guys, we have 30 years of crazy provision stories. Stories that would make some of you nervous because they made us nervous and we lived through them. And it is easy in times of fasting to say, okay, Lord, we're here because you did it then. Rather than to say, Lord, we're here because we want to know who you are. He said, don't miss the signs. Something greater is coming. Don't settle for the sandwich. Sometimes the way we even talk about church in our culture, I wonder what we're searching for. Somebody says, well, I tried a new church. What was it like? And they describe the package, okay? It was a simple church. It was a mega church. It was a smoke machine church. It was a weird dance studio church. It was, you know, we describe the package. I don't really care about the package. Is Jesus in the package? Is he what is being pursued? I'm for good service packaging. I know it's kind of hard to tell, but I like that stuff. But if Jesus isn't in it, I don't want it. He tells them, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, even trying to factor in the length of eternity, setting aside our drive for natural food or provision is hard. We're so focused on our immediate needs. Imagine you finally made that drive to Colorado. You get there, you go for a long hike. You hike a little further than you meant to. Anybody ever do that? Think, I'm going to walk three miles in. You get there, you walk another two miles, forgetting you've just added four miles to your walk. And when you stumble out of the woods to your car, there are two booths set up. 
One says free tacos. The other one says spiritual depth. Where is the line? The line is for the tacos. Because it's very hard to resist what we physically legitimately need in pursuit of what will serve us in eternity. Jesus says, don't get so consumed with consuming the tacos that you miss the fact that there is food that will meet your needs for eternity that you don't even think about. Those of you that have leaned into this fast understand there are times it's really difficult to focus on eternal rewards, isn't it? If you're fasting food, every commercial on TV is about food. It's just in your face constantly. It's easy to lose sight of what we're doing because of our immediate need for food, and that need is real. It's just secondary. Even in the presence of the revelatory teaching of Jesus, the minds of the disciples often went right back to food. In Mark 8, Jesus is telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they start a side conversation among themselves. I think he's talking about food. I think we're going to eat when he's done. The question embedded in that verse in Mark 8, 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? The question embedded in that is this. Are you as concerned about eternity as you are about your immediate physical needs? Are you as consumed with what Jesus is doing in you that will last and make a difference forever as you are concerned about him meeting your immediate needs? And that does not illegitimatize your immediate needs. But do we prioritize them correctly? Now, this is a hard time to talk about this during a fast, so that actually makes it a great time to talk about it. What's the buzz you hear in our community? We start talking right now, side talk. The price of gas, the price of food. Is anybody talking about the price of not following Jesus as the world falls apart? Because that is getting more and more expensive. We are fasting as a reminder to ourselves there is more to this life and we are committing to position ourselves to receive it. When confronted with two signs, free food and eternal rewards, we will say, Jesus, I will stand in this line because I can read the signs and I want to respond to you correctly. Now, Jesus' admonition about food intrigues them. So you go back to John 6, verse 28, 31. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're like, okay, I see where the train is going. How do I get on this train? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Pause. Same people who saw him do a miracle the day before. It's like, there is still like grease on your face from the last miracle. What sign do you give us? What work do you perform? Then they tell him, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Immediately, they're comparing what he might do in the present with what God did for them in the past and demanding another sign that would then cause them to follow him. They went so far as to brag about their history. You know, our ancestors got manna. Moses was leading. I don't know who you are, but Moses was leading and food showed up just by magic. 
That was our ancestors that that happened to. Jesus doesn't mention the fact there were times they were actually angry at Moses and God. Same people. The crowd said, we want what you have, but don't act like we haven't seen a thing or two in our past. Spiritual history is a cumbersome thing. Your history can be rich and rewarding, or it can be an anchor that stops you from moving forward, and it can be both. Jesus is not auditioning against your past for his role as savior of your life, okay? You may have had great things in the past. Jesus says, okay, so you had manna. So that all happened. He goes on to tell them, and those people died, okay? They're not here right now. It's just you and me. And whatever happened in the past, that was great. I don't speak poorly of it, but what happens today? Jesus confronts them in kindness and says, you're not even interpreting that whole thing correctly. John 6, 32 and 34, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. He's saying, you stopped at the sign. You came across a sign that pointed to me and you stopped. You can't stop at the sign. You've got to continue to follow. Jesus tells them, you're wrong about what was being provided and you're wrong about who provided it. And even so, that really was God's hand in your life. But that was then and this is now. Your history in God was meant to be a sign of what is coming. But your sign is not what is coming. Don't stop at the sign. Now, we have, we've got folks in this room with a rich spiritual history. Many in ministry, many who have been in powerful moves of God, many who have, have sat in revival that, that rested on a church or a body for years. All of that, it's all behind us. It's, it's done. It was good. We benefited from it. We're not who we would be if we had not lived through it but it's gone. He says, I want to give you something fresh and new that will allow you to live forever. We are all susceptible to what we call glory year syndrome. Looking back, oh, those were, those were the, oh. <sighs> Let me burst your bubble. It wasn't as good as you remember either. It wasn't that great. I mean, it was good, but it was messier than you remember. You hit delete over a bunch of that stuff. I know of a church that was in revival for four or five years. I mean, people getting saved every night. It was legit. We visited multiple times. It was the real deal. During which, behind the scenes, they had a massive uh, um, disagreement with volunteers and argument over the amount of toilet paper they were having to buy because more and more people were coming. Like that, I'm telling you, it was good. It was a little messy. Revival's like that. And it ages better than it was in the real life. We look back at it, oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, they're fighting over toilet paper. This is why we need new and fresh, because the old is different than we remember. There are things I remember from past history, like seasons of ministry, that I remember as perfect. 
because the Lord blots things out. And that's good, but you can't live on that. The best days and the best things in God are still yet to come. And I am preaching this as much to myself as I am to you. Because as I get a little bit older and I see what it takes to move to the next level, I see things in my own heart and I go, oh, that's going to have to change to go there? I've lived that way for a long time. I had a conversation with Becky this week. I said, I'm learning things about myself that I don't know. I got to change that. And the Lord says, no, you get to change that. And if you change that, there is more. Even the voices of history, the prophet Isaiah spoke about what Jesus would do and always described it as a new thing. And Jesus lays it out. John 6, verse 35, he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus promised them everything that they would need, but he points out that he is what they needed. He's like, I'm going to give you all that you need, but it's, it's actually different than what you've come looking for. For years, Kelsey and I raised our own mission support. Raised it from friends and people who'd, who'd received from our ministry, and we didn't take a salary. We just took admission support. And there was this weird season where we were getting almost no finances, but we were getting things given to us. You know, just like stuff. And it was stuff we needed, but not always the stuff we would have picked. You know what I mean? Thanks. But we never lacked for anything. It was just never quite the stuff we would have picked. And I remember getting a little, I guess brazen would be the word, and saying, Lord, I'm grateful that you're giving us these things, but would it hurt for me to pick once in a while? I felt a very strong rebuke from the Lord. He said, I pick very well for you. Let me pick. Yes, sir. I quit complaining. Literally two months later, we adopt Zoe. I get a stranger, uh, uh, well, almost a stranger, barely acquaintance. I didn't know the guy when he called me. I, I kind of knew the name. Called me and said, does your family fit in your vehicle? I said, not well. Technically we did, but it was tight. Guy bought us a really nice used Suburban. I would have never even thought to ask for that sort of thing. Lord says, I pick very well. He tells them, what you need, I will give you, and it will be better than you expect. John 6, 36 and 37, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He gives them an opportunity that supersedes life, your lifetime. Everybody's looking for the opportunity of a lifetime, aren't they? That one thing, that one thing that changes everything and then their life is different. But have you ever known anybody that really got the opportunity of a lifetime? And then six weeks down the road or six months or six years, they admit that it really wasn't that great. It feels like even when people get what they think they want for their lifetime, they seem disappointed in it even if the rest of us are going, that's not bad. I had dinner with somebody on Monday night that was telling us about acquaintances that they have, these three guys part of a family. And these three guys made a pact together that they would buy a lottery ticket, each one of them, every day. Played different numbers every day, and they said, if any of us ever wins, we'll split it. And after years of doing this, these three guys 
hit an $80 million lottery ticket. Opportunity of a lifetime. And they were talking about it, and they told them, yeah, but you know, until we split it, until we paid the taxes on it, we each got about $12 million. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> Opportunity of a lifetime, but they discovered it didn't really change that much. And even if it did, it only changes for their lifetime, right? I mean, even with $12 million in your pocket, you're only a couple of chicken bones in the throat from it not mattering. Because it only changes your lifetime. Jesus says, I'm not here to give you an opportunity of a lifetime. I'm here to give you an opportunity of eternity. An opportunity that will actually transcend all of what... What do you... $12 million? No one in the morgue cares about your $12 million. Might be an opportunity of a lifetime. It's not the opportunity of eternity. If we accept him, we don't just get a better life. We get permanent fellowship with God by the gateway provided through the death of his son. How does that compare with an opportunity of just a meager lifetime? He says, you need this more than you need food itself. And he wasn't against food. Jesus ate food even in his glorified body. Walked through a wall, ate fish. I don't understand that story at all. It, it puzzles me. And then walked back out. Like, where'd the fish go? How's this work? So he wasn't against food, but what he is saying is, I bring you something that is so much more important than what you are willing to set your sights on. John 6, 53 56, to 56. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He says, if you don't participate in the suffering of Christ, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, embrace me on the cross, you don't even see life. What the world calls living isn't. I know grammatically that's a nightmare, but it's a reality. What the world calls living isn't. What the world calls living is pretty much storage of a soul until it goes to be with Jesus or it rests in the grave. But no one who has touched eternity would call what we're doing here the fullness of living. No one who has seen the other side would look back and go, oh, those were the days. We are meant to live in eternity. And if we are not setting our sights on living on what we are meant to do, are we even really fully human? I'll show you a picture of this crazy bird. It's beautiful, isn't it? That is a griffin vulture, okay? Known for two things. It's fine appearance and its ability to fly 30,000 or 37,000 feet in the air. 37,000 feet. There are Sherpas who risk their life on oxygen to get to the top of the highest point on earth and the birds flying a mile higher, looking down going, look at the little Sherpas. 37,000 feet in the air. This bird regularly gets a view that no other living thing has ever gotten apart from mechanical assistance. 
Flying high is what they are made to do. Now imagine there's a griffin vulture that was born in captivity and has lived in captivity its entire life and has never been allowed to fly outside of its cage, never been more than 20 feet off the ground. Is that really a griffin vulture? Not the fullness of the griffin vulture, okay? It's not what it was made to do. No griffin vulture at 37,000 feet looks down and goes, oh, one of us. The bird in the cage doesn't know the difference. But the bird that's been set free and tasted of something else, he knows we are not meant to live that way. We're not meant to live within the confines of what we think that life is. Some of us, some of our friends are living within the confines of what they think this lifetime is, and they think that's the whole deal. We're not meant to live that way. Just like that vulture is living less than a griffin vulture is destined to live, life apart from Jesus really isn't life. Even if you're living what the world would call the good life. Aristotle described the good life as someone who was contributing to the whole. A philosopher, an architect, an artist, somebody studying science, philosophy. But is that really the good life? Maybe it's the temporary good life. But Jesus offers so much more. John 6, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, that passage caused serious confusion. Some of his disciples literally said, that's a hard saying. Like there are times when they were really excited about what Jesus was teaching and there were times when they leaned back and said, he's doing it again. He's doing it. It's hard. Verse 66 says that some disciples walked away from him or some followers walked away from him after he said this. Think about it. He's assembling a crowd. He's speaking to them and he says this, there's four guys, and I promise you, from years of public speaking, these guys are not in the back row. They're in the front. Oh, I'm going to head right out. And they leave. I was talking with some pastor friends about what goes through their mind when people leave when they're teaching. And it doesn't bother me. I just never think about it. But I, I mean, these are guys, well-known guys who you would know that go into total panic because it messes with their head when people walk out. I always assume when somebody leaves, they're, they think it's good teaching and they're going to get a friend. You know, I'm going to go get somebody. I don't know. But like it messes with your head when you, you see it. Jesus sees these guys get up and leave while he's teaching and he knows it's what he has said. Peter actually says, he gets challenged by the Lord. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? You want out? I'll stop this car. You guys can get out right here. Simon Peter answers very insightfully. He's, Lord, where would we go? He's like, do I want to leave? Technically, probably. But where would we go? Doesn't say no. Says, I don't have any place to go. He says, your words have life. And it's the only place I can find what you're offering. I want to ask if our musicians would come. 
Sometime later, on the eve of his arrest, Jesus revisited this idea of his body and his blood. And it was not a new idea. He'd been talking about it all the way back from John 6. And Jesus told them, I will not share this meal with you again until the fullness of time, until my kingdom comes. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Now keep in mind, this is not the first time they have heard this. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he said to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's no way they could have understood in that moment that within their lifetime, the entire world that was known to them would be recognizing communion. There's no way that they could have known as they sat around the table with Jesus that when man would go to the moon before Buzz Aldrin would get out of the space capsule, he would stop and he would take communion. There's no way they would know that 2,000 years later we would be gathering here, entering in, eating of an emblem of the flesh, drinking an emblem of the blood, and saying yes to eternity. Stand with me. Just hold your emblems for a moment. Stand with me. I want to enter into this communion in worship. So before we receive receive communion, let's just take a moment. We're going to sing for a moment together and lift our voices. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for the body and blood of your son. And before we pray together and receive these, we want to just put activity on hold for a moment. Lift our voices to you in recognition of what this means.